Welcome back to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology and testing. And everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. I'm Noah Reed, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test. And coming up on this week's episode, we bring you another installment of our Endocrine Essential series with our very own Dr. Debbie Rice. Dr. Rice is an expert in female hormone health and will tell you everything you need to know about estrogens. Where are estrogens created? How does the body use them? And what happens when there's too much? Follow along as we talk about this complex and often misunderstood reproductive hormone in this week's podcast. Dr. Rice is the Director of Clinical Education for Precision Analytical and practices part-time as a naturopathic doctor where she focuses care on pediatric health, hormone health, thyroid health, and adrenal health. She has had experience working with communities in need both in the United States and internationally. Her training has been primarily in women's health, pediatric care, hormone therapy, and hormone function, as well as complementary adjunct care. Dr. Rice utilizes multiple modalities, including diet and lifestyle, botanical medicine, and conventional approaches that meet the patient where they are in their health journey. All right, let's get started. Thanks, Noah. And thanks to our Director of Clinical Education, Dr. Debbie Rice, for being with us today. I'm excited to be here. She leads a terrific team that we have of 12 or so clinical consultants that do a really good job of explaining what we do uh, to our clients. Uh, She's well positioned to do that because she really gets this stuff, but she was also one of our first clients of using the Dutch test in her practice for years, actually, before coming on staff with us. So that gives her a really good perspective to answer some questions for us. So today, we are going to pick her big brain and dig into the topic of estrogen. So let's just start with the beginning. Uh, What is estrogen and why do we care? So... I think it's a great question. I think estrogen is one of those things that when you think of estrogen, you think of women, you think of females and female hormone reproductive physiology. Um, You think of the menstrual cycle, you think of development, breast health, ovarian health, um, uterine health. But males also have estrogen, also very important for male physiology and function. Um, But I like to remind people that as much as estrogen is a very big part of reproductive health, it's also important for brain health, cardiovascular health, bone health, right? So it's a, it's a multifactorial hormone, but with the biggest, you know, bang for its buck with female hormone physiology. And when we hear conversations about estrogen, usually, um, the topic is either something that's positive, um, like the things you just mentioned, or we might get into conversations about risk for certain types of cancers or estrogen dominance or those sorts of things. So when you think of estrogen, um, what comes to mind, good, bad, like how do you, uh, what, what, what's the ins and outs of estrogen in terms of whether it's good for us or bad for us? I feel like estrogen gets a really bad rap because a lot of people are like, no, on the estrogen. And I think there's been this uh, underlying uh, theory or thought process that estrogen is bad just because of previous studies and research that has been done. But estrogen is really good, right? Like estrogen helps female, and this is going to be more specific to females, but it helps regulate your mood. It helps regulate your metabolism. It helps regulate your body's capacity to sleep and wake, right? Like it helps with that circadian response. It actually helps with lubrication of your joints. So we have to have a certain amount of estrogen to be able to be 
on a day-to-day basis. So I don't, I don't see estrogen as good or bad. It's a balance of what your estrogen is doing in your body. And we have to remember that estrogen doesn't just live by itself in your body, right? Like there are other hormones that are associated with estrogen and how estrogen works. Estrogen influences how you ovulate and the signaling for progesterone, right? So it's this very complicated and nuanced, beautiful dance between estrogen and progesterone. And it's also influenced by testosterone and DHEA, right? Like there are so many components that are influenced and influence estrogen. So I don't think you can just say estrogen's good or estrogen's bad. We need to look at each person, what their estrogen is doing, why, how, and create that evaluation from there. And if we were going to be sort of reductionist, uh, just for the sake of our audience, what are the top things that you see, uh, let's start with females, for women who are um, deficient in estrogen or have too much estrogen? Like what are the key symptoms that you see on both ends of that spectrum? I was just talking to somebody about this because it's like, oh, you can have very similar symptoms if you don't have enough estrogen or if you have too much estrogen. So a lot of the more common symptoms that you have with low estrogen would be like hot flashes, night sweats, not able to sleep, irritable and emotional, but you swing the pendulum to the other side and you can also have that if you have too much estrogen. I think the other component of too much estrogen is where you can have, um, it's easy to gain weight, difficult to lose weight. Um, the, for cycling females, when you have too much estrogen, we're also looking at Um, heavy periods, fibroids, clotty periods, painful periods, painful breast tenderness. Um, So it depends on which side of the pendulum you're swinging on with too much estrogen, not enough estrogen. Right. And and of course, we like to reduce things to one variable because our brains can handle Mm -hmm. it better. Um, But we know that estrogen and progesterone have this dance that they're doing in terms of balancing each other. So Can you just explain the concept of estrogen dominance, how that relates to both estrogen and progesterone? Yeah. I mean, I say, yeah, like it's simple, but it's not that simple. Um, Because estrogen gets to play a lot more in the menstrual cycle, it has more of a chance to do bad things than progesterone does, right? So we rely on estrogen to do this really big push so that we can ovulate and then it's supposed to calm down and then kind of come up and match progesterone in the luteal phase or the second part of the cycle. So estrogen gets the opportunity to be a part of the all phases of the menstrual cycle, right? So it has more of a chance to do things wrong or right. And if you end up getting, for whatever reason, whether it's stress or different signaling or even genetics, right, you can get more increased signaling with estrogen and if the signaling doesn't calm down you may not get appropriate progesterone balance with that and that's where you can come up with estrogen dominance and estrogen dominance can show up as either irregular cycles or again painful cycles where you're not getting the calming down of the estrogen estrogen just gets to go wild and i like to call progesterone the soothing mama hormone that comes in and like calms estrogen down If you don't get that calming of progesterone, that's where estrogen just goes wild. And that's where estrogen could be bad, um, where you don't have the normal physiologic signaling or capacity to balance that estrogen. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. When we're looking at 
estrogen and progesterone, it's hard to have that conversation in terms of how we assess those before we talk about what it is exactly that we're measuring because estrogen is, of course, this sort of generic term. Yes. Um, so can you translate that to us in terms of estrogen as opposed to the actual chemicals, biochemistry, things that we're measuring in something like a Dutch test? Like the difference between E1, E2, and E3, or sure, yeah. What are what are what is the primary estrogen? What are the things that we're that we're actually measuring? Yeah. So on the Dutch test, we measure E1, E2, E3, and what those do in the body, like how they get processed in the body. But it's also important to understand what are the different estrogens. So as you said, estrogen can be a very generic term. A lot of times when people are talking about estrogen, they're talking about estradiol, and okay. that's also known as E2. Uh, that is the most potent estrogen in the body for cycling females. Um, E1 is also estrone, and we have E3, which is estriol. So when we're looking at these different estrogens, you know, the, the body converts to E1, so that's kind of like your lead into production for E2. Um, and E1 and E2 can convert back and forth into each other. A lot of times it stays in that E2 form because it's the most potent form. It can also convert to E3, which is the weakest form of estrogen. It is, it is also mostly seen in pregnancy. The placenta ends up making a bunch of E3. Um, but the most potent form of estrogen and the one that people generally talk about is estradiol. And estradiol, we can measure in saliva, we can measure it in urine with the Dutch test, we can measure it in serum. Uh, what are some of the advantages of measuring it? Specifically, before we talk about the metabolites, which is usually the first thing that comes to mind, why urine is, mm -hmm. well, metabolites. But if, yeah. we, if we ignore those for a second and just look at measuring estradiol in urine, like, like does it work in urine as well as measuring it elsewhere? Like what's the advantage of urine testing or yeah. pros and cons really? Yeah. I mean, we have great research to support the, um, the, the comparison between estradiol on, let's say a Dutch test versus estradiol and serum. They're quite comparable. So when we look at that and I have a choice of if I'm going to look at estrogen, you know, estrogen in general, I'm going to pull an estradiol from a Dutch test because I want to know a more comprehensive look. I don't want just the estradiol, but if you just want estradiol, you certainly could test that in serum. It depends on what information you're looking for, right? Um, you, there is capacity to do salivary testing with estradiol. Um, my preference, because I feel more comfortable with the research and validity, is to do either serum and or Dutch. Okay, so when we're looking just at estradiol, uh, serum we would call the gold standard I think for mm -hmm. estradiol and then we have peer-reviewed published data that says that we have a reasonably equivalent estradiol mm -hmm. which puts us on a good sort of equal footing there yeah. and then the real benefit of urine as you mentioned is the other things that we get to look at that you, you really don't have a window into mm -hmm. um, in either saliva or in serum testing so what are those metabolites and what do they tell us? So once you get your E1, E2, E3, those primary estrogens, you can look at what those estrogens are doing. So when we're talking about estrogen metabolism, we're really asking what is estrogen doing in the body? How is it getting processed in the body? And the big things that we look for in estrogen metabolism would be after you go through E1, E2, you drop into phase one metabolism. So the body has this process, right? Like just how people, you know, process trash and recycling, right? That there's a whole system that has to happen for how 
you know, trash gets processed, how things get recycled. Same thing in the body, right? We have a phase one and a phase two process in the liver, and we can see that in dried urine testing. So we have your phase one metabolism. This is uh, the metabolites that are associated with that are your 16-OH, your 4-OH, and your 2-OH. And I feel like that's the question of, is it the good, the bad, and the ugly when we're looking at phase one metabolism? We want to look at not just how much of those metabolites are being made, but what the ratio of those metabolites are. So we can see, is your phase one metabolism keeping up with what it needs to do? Can it recycle? Can it clear out everything the way that it's supposed to? We also rely on phase one metabolism to go through phase one and into phase two metabolism. And that phase two metabolism is that like final punch through the liver on can we get that estrogen cleaned up and cleared out of the body. And so that's what we get to look at. The phase two metabolites would be like the two methoxy, right? So the methylated forms of estrogen. And I think it's important to understand that so we know not only how the body is or how much the body is producing of estrogen, but is it clearing appropriately and where can we intervene if it is not? So you said the good, the bad, and the ugly with yeah. 2, 4, and 16, yeah. like which, which one is which? That's a great question. So we're going to always say that the good is the 2-OH. So the 2-OH or the 2-hydroxy is going to be the good. That's the one that we really want to push down that pathway because that pathway is, it doesn't have a strong bond to the estrogen receptor so the body can kick it off easier. It can clean it out easier. So we really want to push it down the 2-hydroxy pathway. Now the bad and the ugly may be a discussion depending on who you're talking to. I would say the Ooh, the ugly one is the 4-OH because that one's really naughty. That is the one that can, um, it binds to the estrogen, estrogen receptor really strongly. Mm -hmm. So the body has to work really hard to get that 4-OH off. Once it kicks it off though, the hope is that it can get methylated and out. But that's the one that can cause damage to DNA, right? So that's the one that goes in there and just like tears everything up. Um, so the 16-OH would then be the ugly, which... I say it's like, you know, the middle child. <laughs> so there are good parts of it, but there are bad parts of it, right? The good parts of the 16-OH is it has proliferative properties. In the good parts of the proliferation, that can be good for bone health. The bad parts of that proliferation are um, like breast and ovarian tissue where you can get like um, cysts or overdevelopment in that way. So that's how I would describe the 16-4 and 2-OH. So you're talking about proliferation and you're talking about DNA damage with some of those metabolites. So yeah. those are, um, as I think of them related, but different in mm -hmm. terms of like, there's, I don't think a really a good angle on DNA damage, right? Like that, um, whereas proliferation is that sort of good and bad in the mm -hmm. right in that balance of what estrogen is doing that you want that balance of it doing estrogenic things. Right. Um, the whole point of estrogen. So which of the, which of the estrogens that we measure like, um, have that estrogenic impact as far as doing things that estrogens do, which, which are, are strong in that sense? You said estradiol mm -hmm. is the most potent. Yes. So which other ones are giving it sort of an estrogen punch? So I, the 2-OH is going to be part of that and the 16-OH. I mean, I feel like if you're getting a bunch of estradiol going through the, you know, the hose of estrogen, you're going to have a lot of estrogenic effect no matter what's happening. So if you're distributing that estradiol into 2-OH, 4-OH, and 16-OH, you're still going to have a pretty estrogenic effect. But the 16-OH is going to be fairly estrogenic. The 2-OH is going to be It's the estrogenic. strongest estrogen of the metabolites that's not estradiol. Is that right? The 16-OH? Right. 
Yes. Yeah, I think I think I saw a study that showed it was about a fifth of estradiol. So it's got some punch, not as much mm-hmm. as estradiol, right. um, but it does have some punch. So um, whether that's good or bad can depend on the overall picture, right? right? If you have a low estrogen person that's pushing that 16, it might help the low estrogen state to Absolutely. to sort of have what it's missing. Absolutely. Whereas if someone's uh, premenopausal and making lots of estrogen, and on top of that they push down the 16-hydroxypathy pathway, then it would exacerbate it could. a high estrogen situation? Mm-hmm. It absolutely could. Okay. Yeah. So then, But then the effect of the four is more related to, we think of as more related to the cancer in terms of, is, of being able to naughty. actually pluck off a piece naughty. of the DNA, the yes. naughty metabolite. Okay, <laughs> yes. got it. Um, so we're talking about a bunch of different concepts here. So when you look at a Dutch report, we've got quite a few estrogen metabolites. So how does your brain work through that in terms of a hierarchy of information of, I I was talking to you before about when I look at the androgens, I'm looking at how much DHEA do you make? How much testosterone do you make? And how do you metabolize it? Mm -hmm. So those are like my big questions there. Like what for you are the big fundamental questions that you're asking yourself as you look at all of those hormones and metabolites. Yeah. I, um, so we, we want to look at how much estrogen is made. So we're looking at how much E1, E2, and E3 are there. And then we want to see how the body distributes or metabolizes, clears all of those estrogens out, right? So depending on how much E1, E2, E3 you have, we can see how estrogenic are you just on that level. And then we have what I kind of look at it as a three-step or a three-tier process, right? Like how much production is being done and then what happens in phase one metabolism and with that phase one metabolism am i worried about the 2oh am i worried about the 16oh or the 4oh and then we look at the methylation are you able to clear all of those phase one metabolites through methylation so you can get it into the stool and cleared out through the body i always say you read a dutch test from top to bottom but you treat a dutch test from bottom to top because, oh, interesting i like that because we want to make sure that right like if everything's coming through the funnel we want to make sure that the bottom rung on the funnel is open because if it's not you're you're gonna have a problem whether it's with production whether it's phase one or phase two so that's what i'm looking at when i'm looking at a dutch test gotcha so it's a multi-layered sort of thing because yes. as i'm hearing you describe it the metabolism itself is important because it clears out estradiol it clears out estrone and that's one concept mm-hmm. and then it just so happens that those metabolites have their own effects, mm-hmm. right? The 16 hydroxy is estrogenic. The four yeah. is potentially carcinogenic. The two is protective. So it's both the, the drain, yes. but then they themselves have impact that you want to be considering as you're looking at that sort of this three-dimensional picture. Yes. So interesting. Yes. Which I think adds to the complexity, but also the beauty of the comprehensiveness of a Dutch test, because you can't just look at a serum equivalent of progesterone and an estradiol and be like, here's your estrogen ratio. It's not that simple because we have multiple layers of estrogen effect that happen. So you want to look at each of those layers relative to the progesterone, for, you know, for example, right. to look at that. And when you have too much estrogen or not enough progesterone, how are you actually assessing that? Because I know some lab tests, when, when it's simple, it's simple, which is nice, right? You have an estradiol, <laughs> you have a progesterone, and you can look at a ratio. Mm-hmm. Whereas for us, it's like the estradiol's got a lot of punch, yes. estrone's got a little more punch, the 16-hydroxy's got a little more than that, and then progesterone's there to balance all of that estrogenic impact, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you assess, when you stare at that picture, whether, whether someone's actually in a state of estrogen dominance um, how do you assess that? So, and I think that that, that is a multi-layered 
question and answer because you can look like if I just look superficially at an estradiol level in the progesterone and say their estradiol is nicely in range, they're in this beautiful luteal range, their progesterone is in a beautiful luteal range, that superficially looks balanced to me. But if we look under the hood, we might be able to see that there's more 16-OH or they're not clearing their 2-OH very well. And that's going to add to that evaluation of what that estrogen dominance and or progesterone deficiency could be. So then if in, in one case, you might just say, hey, you don't make enough progesterone to balance this estrogen. The estrogen's okay. Then mm -hmm. we're going to talk about progesterone. Right. When the conclusion is more like we need to drag that estrogen down a little bit, get it yeah. cleared, whatever. Yeah. What are you looking at and what tools do you sometimes grab to get that in better balance? Yeah. So it's going to be, how is that phase one looking? Are those ratios appropriate? And if all of those are okay is the methylation okay, right? So if, if the ratios of phase one are off, we're gonna know that we wanna work on phase one. But because we wanna treat from bottom to top, we wanna see, okay, even if phase one is off, we wanna look at phase two because as much as we try to fix phase one, if phase two is closing that, like that we're not opening that bottom rung, it's all it is going to do is make your phase one more efficient so that you can continue to recycle your estrogens even better without clearing them. Right. And methylation being more of a ubiquitous sort of uh, situation process. If you're not methylating, it's important for more than just your estrogens. Absolutely. So if you start at the bottom yeah. and you're not methylating and you support that, and then you move on to phase one and phase one has a problem, which I guess would mean either you're not pushing it down the two hydroxy pathway, something like that. Mm -hmm. What do you do? What tools do you have in your toolbox to help with that? to open methylation no or so phase for phase one metabolism mm -hmm. yeah so for phase one metabolism what we're usually looking to do we want to be very mindful of the liver because the liver is like the main metabolizer of everything right so we have to remember that we're not working in a silo when we're talking about estrogen metabolism and helping to support or clear that so we want to be very mindful of of how we intervene there. But in general, we're looking to upregulate or improve how the two hydroxy pathway is, like how open that two hydroxy pathway is. So we really wanna push, funnel everything down that 2-OH pathway. And things that can do that are things like sulforaphane, broccoli sprout powder, milk thistle, like those kinds of things. Um, Lifestyle-wise, we also wanna work on not having a bunch of inflammatory foods and those kinds of things. So is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, a funnel we might want to open. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody has too much estrogen and we just need to reduce their estrogen production. So let's say phase one looks fine. Mm -hmm. Phase two methylation's looking okay, but they're just estrogen people. Like yeah, they're making lots of estrogen. estrogen. Um, what are some of the things you think about? to address it at that level of just reducing production or like what else do you think about? Yeah. So we also want to look at the cause, right? Like, is it more of an ovarian issue or is it because there's inflammation? Is it because there's adipose tissue, um, that are creating that push to estrogen production? So evaluating that component, but if all of that is good and it's just more of like, they just like to make estrogen, um, something like DIM and, and or I3C can be really helpful to eliminate or reduce that estrogen load or estrogen burden on the body. By, and that's another tool that helps push it down that 2-hydroxy pathway. It does. Mm -hmm. um, what about calcium deglucurate? How does that, um, mm. I know that's an estrogen lowering mm -hmm. herb. Is that an herb? Um, what do you call that? 
Uh, that's a good question. Supplement? It, <laughs> yes, it Nutritional supplement. supplement. There you go. Yes. All right. Yeah, so, there you go. So how does calcium deglucurate help us in the fight against high estrogen? So when we think about calcium deglucurate, yes, it can help with estrogen metabolism, but it's, it's a star player in actually phase three metabolism. So phase one and phase two, we can see in urine because that's in dried urine, phase one and phase two are shown up there. Right. Phase three is in the stool. And what happens is beta-glucuronidase is in the stool. And what it does is once your phase one and phase two drop estrogen into phase three, it drops it in a way that it's packaged up really nicely so that estrogen can just go out in the stool. If you have a lot of beta-glucuronidase, it comes in and like tears open that package. I call it like the Grinch. It comes in and it's like, blah, and then sends that estrogen back into the body. So that's the recirculation. Yes. Okay. So what calcium deglucurate does is it manages beta-glucuronidase so that you don't have so much beta-glucuronidase to come in and tear open that package. So that's where it's really the star player is in phase three, but it can also help kind of like milk thistle in like a general detoxification for estrogen metabolism. Okay. And we're, we're thinking about this and saying all this, I think with the assumption that it relates to our female friends. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about estrogen production phase one, phase two, like how does that whole story uh, play out for the gentleman? going to be the same thing. So if you were to come to me and your estrogen metabolism was not great at all, the same ideas for treatment and evaluation are going to be the same between male and female because that estrogen, like once you hit that estrogen, like once your testosterone has aromatized to estrogen, same pathway, same process. And what are the consequences uh, maybe that are unique to a male patient for having too much estrogen? So a lot of times we can see, right, this is where males may have fatigue, um, mood changes, depression, man boobs, right? Like you start to have more um, central adiposity or belly, nice little barrel. Um, that can happen with high estrogen. Okay. And one of the things that I always want to be aware of is when we talk about lowering estrogen in males, this is a very important topic because you want to have enough estrogen because estrogen helps to potentize testosterone receptors, right? So you need to have that estrogen to support testosterone in males, but you don't wanna just clear out your estrogen. We have seen that if, if you have a good amount of testosterone, but we drop your estrogen too low, that can also contribute to symptoms of low testosterone. Difficulty, oh, mm -hmm, difficulty with any of those testosterone things we think of, libido, erection, climax, those things can also happen if you don't have enough estrogen. So it's a very delicate balance. You don't wanna just drain all of the estrogen for males either. So Dr. Scott talked about uh, in the previous episode when we were talking about uh, you know, how the, the cycle works for females that progesterone balances estrogen for women. Is that the same in men as well? Mm, that is a very fun and complex topic. I think progesterone is not as well understood in males. What we do see is high progesterone can be associated with higher stress, higher stress response. Low progesterone can be associated with low testosterone symptoms. Now, does it come to a true balance of estrogen and progesterone in males? I don't know that we have supportive research to go through all of that. In terms of where the estrogen's coming from, mm -hmm. obviously in my reproductive female, the ovaries are 
pumping out estrogen. That's the first thing I think of. Mm-hmm. Um, in a male patient, it's going to be different. Postmenopausal women, their ovaries generally are done making estrogen. So where does it actually come from? Like what is producing estrogen in women and men? So for cycling females in female physiology, it's going to, the biggest amount of estrogen is going to come from ovarian production. Um, In males, 20% um, male physiology, 20% comes from the Leydig cells in the testes. But otherwise, for males and for females, we get it more peripheral, meaning that your testosterone gets converted into estrogen. And so that seems pretty simple for male physiology, but in females that are postmenopausal, that can also happen from fat tissue. Um, that's the main source that we see for postmenopausal females is fat tissue aromatizes that testosterone to estrogen. Okay. So for a premenopausal woman, the ovaries making most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in postmenopausal women and men, then that's the steroid cascade that we love to stare at, uh, really plays that big role, right? Cause we can see yes. DHEA moving to androstenedione mm-hmm. and then testosterone and both of those then getting converted to estrone and estradiol, yeah. which makes sense. Cause I know when we dug through our database and just put people in tiers of postmenopausal women of how much DHEA do you make? high, low, and then you look at the amount of estrogen they have, there's a direct relationship there. So the substrate yeah. of our DHEA uh, is important for that. So then is adrenal health in a postmenopausal woman then important for estrogen production in that phase of life? Absolutely, 150,000%. <laughs> yes. I always say that the adrenal glands become the second ovaries in menopause. So when your ovaries are done, like they have taken their coronas and they have retired to the beach, they are not coming back. (laughs) So the adrenal glands have to make up for that. So that's, and that's a good sort of promotion of what we're trying to do is never to just look at something in isolation, but to look at adrenal health and reproductive health. Because if you have a premenopausal woman who has struggling adrenals then, and her ovaries are hanging in there, then you know what's coming, exactly. right? Is that we as those give way naturally, exactly. right? So, um, which is a good, uh, a good sales pitch for the comprehensiveness <laughs> of Dutch and always looking at the whole picture when we're looking at both our men and our women. Well, it's important to understand your baseline. So I understand, right? Like, yes, absolutely. We want to look at that in perimenopause and postmenopausal females, but we also need to understand the baseline, right? Like if you're a cycling female, but you are burning seven candles at all the ends, mm you're not set up for success and transition in peri and postmenopause, right? So we want to be able to understand where you're at now as a cycling female. So we understand how to support you moving forward, not just getting on the train after, you know, you burn yourself out. So you talked about phase three, you talked about phase two, we talked about phase one and supplementation, a little bit of lifestyle. What are maybe some environmental factors that would cause estrogen dominance? Oh my gosh. Like so many things, especially in our world today, there are all sorts of chemicals. Like it's, it's really overwhelming, right? Like if you sit down and look at it, it's almost like, just don't leave your house and don't use any lotion, maybe not even wash your clothes. Um, because (laughs) there are so many endocrine disruptors, right? So when you hear that big keyword, like endocrine disruptors, what does that mean? And it can, it can really affect how your body is signaling, not just ovarian health, right? But adrenal health, testicular health, right? Like thyroid health, like all of those things. And so when we're looking at environmental 
contributors and or endocrine disruptors. These are things that can be in your makeup, your lotions, your laundry detergent, all of that. And we don't know, uh, well, it would be very difficult to have like just the full comprehensive list of like, this does this, this does this, right? Like we know that there are some big key environmental uh, players in this. And a lot of times they will push more of an estrogen response, right? So we also think plastic. Um, plastic water bottles that sit out in the sun, heating up your food in a plastic thing in the microwave, right? Like all of that can add to some of that endocrine disruption or estrogen, um, exogenous, what we call exogenous estrogen, um, production or effect in the body. Is there a phase of life that this would affect me more like during my reproductive years or during puberty or Mm -hmm. when I'm older? That's a good question. I feel like puberty and like when you're building and making things is going to be a big part of that. But I would say it's relevant all the time. Cause I feel like there's like, when you're a kid, you're not going to be playing around with makeup and doing all of that. So as teenagers, that's going to be a big thing as you know, even for women that are and or men that are using a lot of lotions, skin creams, products, the awareness is important. But I would say a lot of that, even just marketing goes more towards women and so being aware of that well i would say the the biggest impact could be when you're the size of a thimble right when you're at when you are 12 weeks in the womb you are differentiating your sexual organs right and now you have this 20 something 30 something year old woman using these products like it's not great for her but she's fully formed right Right. and her endocrine system is fully formed so when you're forming the endocrine system um I mean, I would say that's a time of particular vulnerability is, um, and you can see, you can see the effects of it, right? You can, you can measure phthalates in a woman who's pregnant and you can, there is a measurable difference in their genitals Mm. when they're born, like for the baby boys, because they're basically taking anti-testosterone when they spray their perfume on. And when they put a lotion on that has something that's so safe, you don't have to put it on the label. Right. Right. And then you can measure the difference in like in the geometry of the genitals of the boys. It's like, wow, that's a really big deal. So I think that's a really vulnerable time is mm. when we're looking at having babies yeah. um, is, is uh, really being yeah. careful um, about that. So I think that's important. Well, this has been a wealth of information. Um, we really appreciate you taking a spin through estrogen and its impact on us and our patients. Uh, so thank you for joining us and, yes. and giving some clarity to that topic. Thank you for having me. I love it. I love all the hormones. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Debbie. Thanks. It's been great having you on the show and in person, Dr. Rice, to discuss all things estrogen and estrogen detox. I know this is a big topic that a lot of people will benefit learning more about. And a big thank you to all of our listeners who joined us this week. If you have any questions, please send them to podcast at dutchtest.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe so that you can stay up to date on what's happening with the Dutch podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode with another very special guest, Dr. Kelly Roof. Mark Newman will be back in the studio and we'll get to learn together about female androgens. You won't want to miss this conversation. So join us again for another insightful episode of Hormone Education. I'm Noah Reed. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time.